Welcome to part two of our episode with Dr. Paolo Ferrao, where we are talking all about the foot and ankle. If you haven't heard part one, I'd encourage you to listen to that episode as well, as the content is fairly different, but also very valuable. So let's get back in. Dr. Ferrao, welcome back. I'd like to please chat a little about tibialis posterior injuries. How do they present? Why do they happen? And are there any risk factors one could screen for in high-risk athletic populations? All right, so also quite an interesting question. So acute posterior tibial tendon injuries per se are rare. What we deal with more often with regards to the posterior tibial tendon is the so-called posterior tibial tendon dysfunction. Now, that is more of a degenerative process of the, of the tendon, and it usually presents with a sudden spontaneous onset of medial-sided ankle pain and swelling, but these patients cannot recollect any specific injury or activity which attributed to this pain and swelling. And we usually see it in the females, usually between the ages of 40 and uh, 60, with a higher uh, BMI. And as a result of this progressive degeneration of the tendon, they slowly start to progress a flat foot deformity. So it's a kind of a process which happens over time. Now, now in athletes, as I said, you don't really see acute injuries to the tip post tendon itself, but what is more likely to happen is that they can tear the spring ligament. That, that, that can definitely happen. And the difference here is that the patient presents with a sudden sharp medial pain, which occurred during either one of their training activities or sporting activities. And what is classic is that they would have had a sudden collapse of the arch. So they suddenly tell you, my, my foot suddenly went flat. It used to be absolutely normal. Now it, uh, now it collapses. And the other interesting is that because the posterior tibial tendon is actually functioning and not damaged, they can consciously reconstitute that arch. So they'll stand there. You can see them forcing that arch up and keeping it up. But when you tell them just relax, show me what you mean by your arch collapse, you see suddenly how it all falls in. And these injuries can be easily missed and they are quite serious and unfortunately don't usually respond to conservative management. Therefore should be referred to orthopedic surgeon to diagnose. Besides your clinical examination, you'll also need to send them either for an ultrasound or MRI to confirm it. And uh, ultimately they will uh, require surgery. Now, another injury which can occur in the athlete and specific to the posterior tibial tendon is where you get an acute dislocation of the posterior tibial tendon over the middle malleolus. Again, this patient will present with a history of acute episode where usually the foot everts and they feel like something snapped out of the place. And what they often may even describe, they say, it felt like my ankle dislocated and then I forcefully inverted my ankle and it popped back into place. So that's kind of a classic history. And once it's back in place, they're actually not that symptomatic, but you'll see a lot of swelling, a lot of bruising around the medial side of the ankle itself. Basically, at rest, as I say, these patients don't have that much pain. But if they try to go back to their sporting activities or they do any kind of resisted inversion maneuvers, they suddenly get that sharp snapping pain again. And these cases also need to be assessed by an orthopedic surgeon because once that retinaculum is torn, unfortunately, you have to reattach it surgically to prevent recurrent dislocations. And the problem, every time it dislocates, you risk getting tears into the tendon and ultimately that could uh, rupture the tendon. I personally have uh, managed one of these uh, in a volleyball player, so it's not that common and it's easily missed because again, they give you this history of my ankle dislocated. And a test to perform for this, you basically ask them to do resisted inversion of the foot. And basically, you're tensing up that tip post tendon and will just snap over the middle malleolus. It's quite dramatic because it's loud and it's painful and the patient, yeah, it's uncomfortable, but it is way. You don't want to miss it and that's the way to diagnose it. Excellent. Okay. 
So a somewhat prevalent injury in ballet dancers, soccer players, and fast bowlers in cricket is a posterior ankle impingement. Sometimes it's referred to posterior ankle impingement syndrome. Can you discuss the pathoetiology of this injury? So posterior ankle impingement is basically char characterized by a patient who experiences deep posterior ankle pain when performing any hyperplantar flexion movement of the ankle. Now, basically what's happening here is that you're crushing the posterior lateral process of the talus and the posterior ankle soft tissue between the tibia and the calcaneus when performing excessive plantar flexion maneuvers. And it's often described as a nutcracker effect. Now, these injuries or the syndrome can either be acute. Now, acute is where you either fracture that posterior process of the talus or you tear a ligament in the back. Now, this is not as common usually seen in the soccer players and more commonly it's a chronic injury it's basically a repetitive overuse injury and because you're crushing this posterior process of the talus the soft tissue you start getting bony edema which results in inflammation in the area this inflammation results in scar tissue formation so you're thickening that soft tissue more stuff can get crushed between the tibia and the calcaneus and as a result you start getting this so-called uh, syndrome now, with regards to etiologies, the most common bony pathology is either a stider process. Now, a stider process is basically an elongation of the posterior lateral process of the talus. And the stider process usually develops between the ages of about 8 and 12. It's a, it's a secondary ossification center which forms in some, some people. Now, the next most common bony anatomy that can be there is a so-called ostrigonum. Now, all that an ostrigonum is, is a stider process which hasn't fused onto the talus. And then you get varying sizes of and uh, lengths of the starter process in uh, ostrogonum. Now, the, as I said, that's the most common pathology is the bony pathology. You do get soft tissue components where you get the so-called intermalleolar uh, ligaments. Now, these are only found in about 60% of uh, people, also known as a marsupial meniscus. And again, this thickened ligament causes, lies right at the back of the ankle. As you plant a flex, it gets sucked into the ankle joint and then gets crushed. And because it's getting crushed, it's crushed, it's getting inflamed, scar tissue being laid down, makes this ligament thicker and therefore starts causing impingement and pain. Okay, so you alluded to this just now, um, but this injury commonly doesn't force an athlete to immediately be sidelined. And as a result, um, athletes and their respective healthcare practitioners are left trying to manage their pain as they keep trying to compete. How would one assess and decide on a management course for this injury? Yes, so as I mentioned, most of these are chronic processes that's occurring. So quite correct. It's not that you have to kind of stop your season and you know, you're out of it and you have to go for your surgery. There, there's no danger in managing this conservatively and getting them through through the season uh, and basically what causes their pain is the inflammation and the synovitis and if you can manage that inflammation and synovitis during the season you can get them to to carry on playing now what do you need to do when it does become inflamed they do have to be rested for a period of about two to three weeks and you got to avoid any kind of plant affliction activities in the acute injuries you may need to apply rice so your rest ice compression elevation etc non-steroidals work very well because again as i said it's an inflammatory problem that's what's causing your pain the pain generator so if you can get rid of the inflammation their symptoms will get better. In severe cases, they may need to be mobilized in a cast or a boot for two weeks or so. 
And then very important, the physical uh, therapy needs to be focused on not only improving ankle stability, but also optimizing proprioception because there's some good evidence showing that if you got uh, incompetent ATFL, so your, your talus is subluxing anteriorly, that predisposes you for even more compression when you do this hyperplantar flexion. So you need to stabilize that ankle. So physio extremely important. Now also, especially for the fast bowlers, you can modify the technique. So by shortening their stride length, so uh, the, the, the fast bullets, that front foot as it plants, it plants in a hyperplantar flexed um, position. There's some good studies where they looked at the difference in stride length. The longer you make the stride length, the, the, the more you plant a flexing the foot and the more force going through the back of the, of the ankle. So again, so these bowlers, they can get their techniques modified, therefore limiting the amount of plant flexion and therefore reducing the risk of developing that inflammation again. Now, also which is commonly used is cortisone. Now, cortisone is not curative, but it definitely will help the player get through the season until such a stage where he's got the time to have it addressed to surgically. And again, in soccer, we've shown, uh, they've shown that conservative management can be curative. And the reason there, I think, is a lot of it's soft tissue injuries. But if you look at ballet dancers and cricketers, the kind of small studies that are available, these will ultimately require surgical excision of either the starter process or the ostrogonum or the scar tissue for long-term relief. Otherwise, I just keep flaring up. So yes, there's no rush. You can get them through the season, but ultimately they will require it to be addressed if they want to continue practicing at the level that they are. Great. What are some of the common signs of stress fractures in the foot and ankle and how do they present and how are they typically managed? Okay, well, this, this is a huge topic. So I'm going to try and kind of summarize a basic approach to stress fractures in the, in the foot and ankle. So basically these injuries result either due to overuse or due to a malalignment in the foot. Now in your elite athlete, it usually occurs in the beginning of the season. And the reason being is on the off season, the athlete didn't keep up with his normal training regime. So his fitness is behind. He suddenly wants to catch up with regards to his fitness and he overdoes it and therefore develops a stress fracture. Now, in your, let's call it your average Joe kind of person, it's usually a scenario where they decide to do a certain activity which they've never trained or done before. For example, doing the otter trail or walking the Caminos and they pay a lot of money for it and they're going to get to the end, come hell or, or high water. And then unfortunately, they develop a kind of a stress injury. Now, these patients will usually present with a history of a sharp pain in the foot during certain activities so your, your sportsman like bowler while he's bowling he gets pain under the sesamoid as he plants it uh, front foot um, your rugby player pain under the base of the fifth metatarsal so the, the sharp pain is during the activity whereas during at rest and in supportive shoes it's usually a dull ache that they experience now there might be some mild swelling and redness again depending on the severity of the stress fracture if it's early or later and then um Clinically, they usually have diffuse tenderness. They kind of tell you the whole forefoot area would be kind of painful in a metatarsal stress fracture. But if you take your time and carefully palpate, again, knowing the surface anatomy around the foot, you can pinpoint the maximal area of tenderness. So classically, for example, for navicular stress fractures, we've got that end spot, which is pinpoint tenderness over the mid substance of the navicular dorsally itself. For the base of fifth metatarsal, again, your pinpoint tenderness would be about two to three centimeters distal to the base of the, uh, the fifth metatarsal. 
Now, also very important, in the acute setting, unfortunately, x-rays won't show any obvious pathology. X-rays take usually minimum 14 days or more before you start being able to see the stress fracture being visible. So if you are dealing with a high-level athlete and you're concerned, this would be one of the instances where MRI should be done early rather than late. But again, with your clinical examination showing that or suggesting that it could be a stress fracture. Now, with regards to treatment, again, very difficult because different stress fractures require different treatment. But to give you a kind of a basic outline of how to approach it, so first of all, you gotta look for any biological causes for the stress fracture. Is there malnutrition? Is there vitamin D deficient? Is there a hormonal imbalance in the patient? And this is very important. You gotta identify these factors and you got to correct them. Not only will this help with the healing, but also prevent future stress fractures. So that's important and it's often a team approach. You may need to send it to an endocrinologist to be assessed properly. Now, very important again with regards to management is to look for malalignment. Because if there's any malalignment to the foot, you'll be getting overloading of a certain area, which will result in the stress fracture. So your classic of that would be your cavaverous foot. They often get stress fractures at the base of fifth metatarsal. So you see that you've got to address it either with orthotics and if really needed, and in severe cases, it may need to be addressed surgically. Now, for example, stress fractures of the second to fourth metatarsal and calcaneous stress fractures do very well with conservative management. So if you mobilize them in the boot four to six weeks and uh, kind of slow down their training program, they will heal. However, if you're dealing with a stress fracture of the navicular or the base of fifth metatarsal, unfortunately, these don't respond to conservative uh, management effectively and ultimately will require some sort of surgical intervention. And these are often, again, associated with some malalignment of the foot, which also needs to be addressed. So as I say, it's a very broad topic, but that's kind of a, a basic approach. Listen to the history, get a good clinical examination. If you're really worried early on, get an MRI. X-ray is not going to show you much. Don't forget to look at the biology of, of the stress fracture. Look for malnutrition, et cetera. And then uh, each, each stress fracture is managed according to its merits. The terms malalignment and posture are quite frequently used interchangeably or at least you know, in the same sort of circles. In recent years, the physio world in particular has been debating the importance of posture. And we know that posture in and of itself is not a predictor of pain. And so naturally, some researchers and clinicians have questioned treatments that then focus on correcting posture in and of itself. Is there any clinical significance to foot posture? And if so, how concerned should we be when a patient presents to us with uh, pes planus, pes cavus, or hallux valgus? Yeah, this is a, a great question and again, a, quite a difficult uh, question to address. So I agree, I think posture is important and with posture goes core, core strength. I think, uh, you know, if you don't have core strength, the whole malalignment goes out. And again, the foot's at the end of, of the body and taking the load of the body. But if the supporting structures above it aren't keeping the mechanical axis right, the foot is going to take strain and, and going to give you problems. So I, I do agree that posture is important and definitely core strength. And, you know, all the muscles got to work together. It's not, it's not, no, there's nothing in isolation. The foot doesn't work by itself. It's, it's all linked together. Now, when we talk so-called foot posture, as you mentioned, what about the flat foot, the cavaverous foot, hallux valgus? Now, what we've got to differentiate, first of all, with these deformities, is it a congenital deformity or is it an acquired deformity? Because you can have a flat foot in a patient who's congenital, so who's born with it. A lot of the marathon runners, especially from Africa, have got flat feet and they're phenomenal runners and they don't need anything done to their flat foot. They cope very well. So in a congenital flat foot, I wouldn't necessarily intervene surgically 
just because they've got flat feet. But there's no harm in using orthotic, but it's also not necessary. In cases where I would consider orthotics, if they start getting knee pain as a result of their, their flat foot, sure, that, that, that may be something I would try and address with orthotic. But again, in the congenital setting, if, especially in the elite athlete, I would try and avoid surgery at all costs. Now, in acquired deformity, that's a different story. Now we're having failure of soft tissue, which is resulting overload of joints and bone, and now we're getting malalignment. That, unfortunately, does need to get addressed. We've got to know why is the soft tissue failing and causing this malalignment, because ultimately, it's going to have a chain effect all the way up the leg. So in acquired, you need to investigate and address appropriately. Congenital, I would uh, monitor and try non-invasive uh, measures. Same, similar with the cava virus you mentioned. Unfortunately, the cava virus can be due to muscle imbalances. And again, because there's a muscle imbalance, those are progressive and they can result in more problematic uh, uh, situations. So that's when you start getting stress fractures, et cetera. Again, in the elite athlete, I try and be as non-invasive as I, as I can. So if I can get away with orthotics, sometimes, unfortunately, they already present with some um, pathology. So the tendons are already damaged and they need to have those uh, repaired. So it's not that you're going to get away from doing surgery, but again, Congenital stuff, I'm going to try bracing, especially in the elite athlete. In the non-elite elite athlete, bad cave of obvious cave virus with muscle imbalance, I'd, I'd correct sooner rather than later. Because again, it's a progressive deformity. You're going to end up doing more harm, start damaging your ligaments, start damaging your tendons. So if you can prevent it by doing surgery uh, earlier, I, I would go ahead. What about the helix valgus? Again, is it a congenital helix valgus? Is it traumatic? Or is it just a kind of natural progression from previous shoe wear, genetics, etc. Now, I've got patients where the big toe is pointing west, it looks horrible, but the patient's totally asymptomatic. So again, it goes on what the patient's complaining about and what is your clinical findings. If a bunion or helix valgus form is totally asymptomatic, it's not affecting, affecting the sporting activities, I would not address it surgically. So yeah, so as I say, congenital, unless it's causing pain to have a minimalistic approach, you can use orthotics when needed. But, but if anything is acquired, especially acutely, you've got to try and find out why did this happen acutely? Why is there deficiency of the, of the, of the soft tissue and now malalignment of the bony architecture? Excellent. Thank you. I just wanted to ask a question on posterior heel pain. I was wondering if you could just walk us through your clinical assessments and how you would reason out the differential diagnoses of like a retrocalcaneal bursitis, or maybe an insertional tendinopathy? Okay, so first of all, heel pain per se, or posterior heel pain, there's a couple of pathologies which we need to exclude. The, the common ones are your insertional Achilles tendonitis, which includes your uh, retrocalcaneal bursitis, as well as your degenerative insertional tendonitis. Then you can have plantar fasciitis, which we've discussed earlier, that's your posterior medial heel pain, but you can also get a heel fat pad contusion. And that's more central pain under, under the heel pad. That's um, often as a result of poor shoe wear or a hard impact to the heel. And basically what happens here, now your heel is compromised of a special fat pad, which is compartmentalized fat globules in there. And actually, once you damage those, it's actually extremely difficult to manage a heel fat pad contusion. And you, all you can do is basically cushion the area, limit the impact, and just give it time to heal. So that's actually a difficult pathology to address. Look out for it. You need to differentiate it from plantar fasciitis. 
So just remember that. Another cause of posterior um, heel pain is your tussle tunnel syndrome. So especially in sportsmen, we get the so-called Baxter's nerve impingement. So that's the first branch of the lateral plantar nerve, which gets constricted and it causes pain actually on the lateral side of the calcaneus. So something to, uh, to consider. But I think the common ones we will see in, in athletes, and let's focus on a bit, is the insertional Achilles tendonitis. So how do you differentiate a so-called degenerative insertional tendonitis from just a simple retrocalcaneal bursitis. Now, first of all, what causes this pathology? Now, unlike a non-insertional Achilles tendonitis, a non-insertional Achilles tendonitis is a biological problem. Again, there's this area of poor vascularity about four to six centimeters above the insertion. And if you get a micro tear there, again, you start putting this poor collagen and it just doesn't want to heal. So there you got to address the biology to get that right. Now, insertional Achilles tendonitis is usually a mechanical problem. And basically what happens is you either have a Haglund's deformity, so you basically got a pronounced posterior superior tuberosity of the calcaneus. And what happens is as you're moving the ankle, that tuberosity is rubbing on the Achilles tendon, causing friction, causing degeneration damage, and starts an inflammatory process. Now, a pure retrocalcaneal bursitis, your Achilles tendon itself shouldn't have too much central tenderness, but if you palpate on either side of the Achilles tendon, just superior to the calcaneus, it's significantly painful. And again, if you then move on to your x-rays, for your degenerative insertional Achilles tendonitis, often you'll see a tractional spur or calcification at the insertion of the tendon. So once you see that, that's a degenerative tendonitis. Those, unfortunately, don't do well with conservative management. Um, they got about a 30-40% success rate with conservative. And what is conservative? So your anti-inflammatory modalities. What you don't want to do with these is the classic eccentric loaded uh, Achilles program. Now your classic eccentric program, you dip the heel off a step. So you go, so you're basically dorsiflexing the ankle. When you're dealing with insertional, again, I remember I said it's the friction of that calcaneal tuberosity on the tendon. So by dipping the heel below neutral, you're just aggravating that friction there. So if you do want to do eccentric loaded, you've got to do it on the same level. So you don't want to get them below neutral. So they don't, they don't do it on a step. They do it on, on a flat surface. Um, and as I said, that's the only thing that's been shown to help about 30 to 40% of cases. But again, once you've got that tractional spur, that tendon is degenerate, that spur is causing pain, you need to unfortunately go remove the spur, clean out the tendon, remove the overgrowth of the tuberosity, which is causing the friction to get it to heal. Now, a pure retrocalcaneal bursitis, on the other hand, as I say, x-ray findings looks pretty normal. If you were to do an MRI, you'd see inflammation and the bursitis there. Those do respond to a, a cortisone injection. Now, I, I say that very uh, carefully. When I say a cortisone injection into the retrocalcaneal bursa, never ever put cortisone into any tendon, please. There's no indication. Yes, the patient will feel better for a couple of weeks, couple of months, but in the long term, that tendon is either going to rupture or it's going to be severely de degenerate. So you're not doing that patient any justice by, by giving cortisone into a tendon. Retrocalcaneal bursitis, different story. Just like your posterior ankle impingement, yes, you can give cortisone into those uh, situations. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. If listeners wanted to hear more for you or if they wanted to get in touch with you elsewhere, where can they find you? They're welcome to email me. I'm always happy if, you know, if guys have got questions and not sure they've got difficult cases. Um, you can just email me at paulo, that's P-A-U-L-O, at sign, 
CyberSmart, that's C-Y-B-E-R-S for sugar, M-A-R-T, T for Tommy, dot C-R-O-Z-S. Paolo at CyberSmart, dot C-R-O-Z-S. Excellent. Thanks so much. Great. Thanks, guys. If you ever need anything else in future, let me know. Thanks for listening to part two of this episode on the foot and ankle. Our next episode is also about the foot and ankle, but we'll be focusing more on the rehabilitation aspect of care. So be sure to look out for that episode where we'll be interviewing Lindsay Harris, who is a physiotherapist. Thank you for listening. Cheers.